How well do arguments for atheism stand up in the courtroom? Do atheistic frameworks give a satisfactory answer for understanding human existence? Hello and welcome back to the God's Story podcast. I'm Brent Siddle and I'm joined today by one of the top criminal trial lawyers in the States, Mark Lanier. He's just published a new book with InterVarsity Press, IVP America, called Atheism on Trial, A Lawyer Examines the Case for Unbelief. Mark is a trial lawyer and founder of the Lanier Law Firm. US News and World Report's Best Lawyers named him to its Best Lawyers in America list for nine consecutive years and is the 2013 top class action attorney in America. He's a frequent guest on news shows on CNBC, Fox Business News, ABC and others. And Mark joins me now on Zoom from the States. Mark, hi, how are you? I'm very well. What an honor to be on your podcast. Well, it's no, it's an honor for us to have you. Now, can we talk a bit about legal evidence? First of all, what constitutes evidence in the legal arena? So in the legal arena, you learn early in law school that there are two kinds of evidence. And this is true in almost every Western court system, certainly true in the British courts and the American courts, which derive from the British court system. Uh, one set of evidence is direct evidence. This is, I can testify that it's raining outside because I saw the rain. The second kind of evidence is uh, an, an indirect evidence or circumstantial evidence. And that's where you say, uh, uh, based upon the fact that people are coming in from outside wearing rain jackets and wellies and they've got umbrellas that are wet that they're shaking off and we hear thunder and the patter patter of water against the window, I can deduce that it is raining, even though this is circumstantial evidence that teaches it, it's not a direct eyewitness evidence. And, and that's extremely valid and important in every court system because you rarely have someone who physically sees a shooter. Uh, you're you're going to have to go to circumstantial evidence to establish most any crime or case that you've got. What's the importance of burden of proof? Because you write quite a bit about the burden of proof in your book, don't you? Yes, there's a problem that we've allowed to creep into our thinking when it comes to proving whether or not there is a God, for example. Uh, the, the problem is, what, what does it mean to prove something? Well, you can get into a, a chemistry lab and take a piece of litmus paper and test whether or not a liquid is a base or an, or an acid by what it does to the, to the litmus paper. Works great. You can get a thermometer to test whether or not uh, a temperature is cold or hot, et cetera. Works great. But a litmus paper will not test the temperature nor will a thermometer tell you if something is a base or a liquid. And so courts recognize that proof isn't simply something that eliminates any possibility of otherwise. It's not always something that's logically two plus two equals four. Sometimes proof is the greater weight of credible evidence. Let me give you an example. If I try a case and I prove that uh, uh, someone has died wrongfully, and that the widow should be entitled to recover damages. The law requires me to show that there was love between the two. Well, how do you prove that by mathematical formula? You can't prove love that way. You have to look at the totality of the circumstances and the evidence, and then decide what's most likely based upon that evidence. So the burden of proof that should be used in things that are outside the chemistry lab or outside the, 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 the math class 
uh, are, are these things that we use in court every day. It's what's more likely than not based upon the, the, the credible evidence. How do you define atheism and agnosticism in the book? Because they're two very different things, aren't they? Yeah, they, they are. And, and Brent, you're, you're right, because different people define them differently. And so, so I recognize that there are different definitions by others. I have a degree in Greek and Hebrew before law school. And so I tend to look at things um, uh, linguistically. Uh, theism is simply from the Greek word theos. It means God. So theism is a belief that there is a God. Um, uh, a theism is a belief that there is no God. Uh, when you put a in front of a Greek word, it just means no. Uh, in, in English, we do the same with the letters I am. It takes the possible and makes it impossible. Or un takes acceptable and makes it unacceptable. In the same way, you put a in front of a Greek word and it makes it the opposite. So theism is believing God. A theism is not believing in God. Now there's another Greek word for knowledge. And, and knowing, and that's the word gnosis. And if you know something, then you've got gnosis, knowledge. But if you don't know, it's agnosis, which in English we'd pronounce agnostic. And that means I don't know. So the way I approach those terms in terms of breaking out categories for proof, atheism means I believe there is no God. Agnosticism means eh, I don't know. I don't have enough reason to believe, but I'm not going to be dogmatic about it. In what ways do you cross-examine the arguments for atheism and agnosticism in the book? I approach it under a, an idea of let's put all of the evidence into scales. So if you can imagine uh, uh, in court systems uh, in, in America and in, in the UK, oftentimes you'll see Lady Justice and she's holding these two-sided scales. And sometimes she's even blindfolded because justice should be blind. You put all of the evidence on the scales. One side has one set of evidence, the other side the other, and see what outweighs the, the, the other. That's what I try to do. So I say, if atheism is true, if there is no God, then let's put all of the evidence that supports such a view on one side of the scales and the other evidence against that point of view on the other. And let's just assess the evidence, weigh it, and, and make a, a logical conclusion. Now, that's the approach I use for both of these. And, and, and my, my response after I do it is, frankly, the evidence is so compelling. I don't have uh, enough in me to be an atheist or an agnostic. Uh, try as I might. I, 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 couldn't gen I couldn't generate enough faith to be uh, an atheist. Uh, uh, it, it just is too contrary to the evidence that I see. Yes. What actually is the evidence for atheism? Is there well, any evidence for atheism? Atheism itself is, is got pretty shallow evidence. Let, let me give you some examples. I don't see God. Okay. Well, uh, first of all, uh, I, I don't see Vladimir Putin, but I, I have no doubt he's there. I don't see oxygen, but I have no doubt it's there. What vision is, ultimately, is it's, it's the, the, the light uh, uh, waves that are in a visible spectrum bounce off of physical items. And then when it bounces off of those items, uh, it enters in through the black dot in the middle of your eyeball. 
and goes to the back of your eyeball where it's translated into electrical signals that go into your brain. Now, if there's not an item there for those light waves to bounce off of, you're not gonna see diddly squat. You're not gonna see anything. Well, if God is not a physical atomic being of molecules in front of you, of course you're not going to see God. But no one even remotely thinks that God is is uh, uh, just a supersized human being. Uh, God, God uh, the claim of God, long before people understood the science behind it, the claim of God in the, the Bible has always been that absent him taking a human form in Jesus, that absent a, a manifestation or an incarnation like that, God is spirit and, and is not going to be seen by light waves bouncing off of him. So, you know, you, so you, you've got proof like that, that there is no God, but, but those are pretty superficial if you really chase them out. Yeah. Do the arguments for atheism sustain any burden of proof? It seems to me that if Dawkins, for example, Richard Dawkins, or, or some of the other evangelistic atheists, as I call them, people out there trying to persuade you that they've got proof there is no God, their proof it doesn't exist. What they wind up doing is they just simply say, uh, in essence, well, I, I, I don't believe there's a God because dot, dot, dot. But they, they really shift the burden of proof and say, prove to me there's a God. Well, that's not proving there is no God. That's just saying, uh, I'm not going to believe in him until you prove him to me. And, and, and that's a, a shift of a burden of proof. I think that more intellectually honest would be for someone to say, I'm an agnostic. I don't have any proof. I don't know. Maybe there is, maybe there isn't. But if you're going to be a, a Richard Dawkins and be evangelistic in your atheism and try to say dogmatically, I can prove there's no God, then you've got to come forward with the proof. And, and frankly, no atheist that I've ever read does that. And, you know, I divide the atheists into three buckets in my brain. One set of atheists are people who just really haven't ever thought about it. They've just kind of decided there is no God. More times than not, they're just kind of offended at God oftentimes and emotionally upset with him because he didn't come through in the clutch the way they wanted him to. So you got one set that don't really think about it. They just are. Then you've got one set that a uh, second set that are popular atheists and, and they're atheists and, and out there writing the books and, and making the YouTube videos and having the debates um, in a way that, that draws attention to themselves and actually even pads their bank accounts with some funds. Uh, these are actually kind of superficial. I mean, I go back to, to Richard Dawkins because he's one of the most prominent having written The God Delusion, which was a bestseller. And I have no doubt that Dawkins is a, a very good, proficient scientist. I mean, he's, I've, I've looked at his science stuff. Uh, um, you know, my, my son spent 12 years at Oxford, uh, and, and I've engaged with a lot of people there and, and, and a lot of people who know him, though I've never met him. And by all accounts, seems to be a really good scientist. But if you look at his philosophy and how he is as a philosopher, I think he's a hack. I think, I think his philosophy, he, he, he's, that's just... You know, I got to tell you, I'm really good in a courtroom, but you do not want me on a football pitch because I'd be horrendous. I, 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 I couldn't make the worst league there is. I'd be relegated from the bottom relegation. But, but that doesn't mean I'm not a great lawyer. I mean, I've got more jury verdicts uh, uh, in terms of dollars than any other lawyer in the history of America. 
but but that's not going to help me on the football pitch. Dawkins, smart scientist, philosopher, I think he's a hack. And I think his stuff is so weak when it comes to this area. It always puzzles me. What actually is the case for atheism founded on? Well, it, it's founded on the fact that they just can't get anyone to prove to them to some measure of scientific certainty that there is a God. So they'll set up, you know, Christopher Hitchens was, was one who would say things like, okay, if there is a God, um, then let's all get together and pray that at six o'clock tonight, Greenwich Mean Time, God's going to cure all cancer in the world. And uh, we all get together, we all pray at 6 p.m., and God doesn't cure all cancer, ergo, there is no God. Well, no, ergo, God is not your personal valet who does what you or a group of others tell him to do. That doesn't mean there is no God. Um, uh, and, and, and so I think that, that people are just sort of shallow and they'll make shallow arguments, but they're never addressing the really hard questions of life. And the really hard questions of life are the ones that leave you with a, a you've, you've just got to really fly in the face of evidence to say there is no God. You know, one of, one of the key tests that I apply is, is your belief system livable? If someone can hold your belief system and live consistently with it, I'll pay much better attention. But if your belief system is one, that is defied by your life, defied by my life, defied by everyone's lives, then I'm not going to believe it. You've got to have a belief system that's real. Yes. I mean, you mentioned uh, cancer, and I think putting on my devil's advocate hat for one second, if I may, as an interviewer, one of the arguments that uh, atheists tend to put, to put is, is simply evil and the existence of evil and suffering in the world. And that seems to be a big thing for them. Uh, but is the existence of suffering actually a valid argument against the existence of God? Well, I think it's an argument that, that merits very close scrutiny, because it's a very serious and real argument. And, and those types of arguments I, I treat much more carefully in the book, uh, and, and I do when I deal with people. I, I believe in a worldview that says there is evil. Uh, I believe in a worldview that says there is suffering. I believe in a worldview that says God takes issue with it. I believe in a worldview that says Jesus came down to model our effort to fight suffering. When Jesus is confronted with suffering, every time he fights it. He heals the lame. He heals the blind. He, he, he resurrects the, the, the widow's son. He, he's, he's always combating suffering. And, and, and that is what he charges his people to do. And I think it's our responsibility to combat suffering, not to say, well, hey, that's just the way it is. So I, I, I do believe there's evil and I do believe there's suffering. But my perplexing problem is, why on earth does it bother us that there's evil or suffering? That's the question that's got to be answered. Because for the atheists to be bothered by the evil and suffering tells them there's something going on in their brain, in their essence, in their mind, in their soul, whatever you want to call it. There's something going on that values life. There's something going on that values dignity, that values importance, 
that values goodness. And if you look at the sharks in the ocean, do you honestly believe for a moment that the sharks are swimming around lamenting the fact that some fish have gotten eaten? Not at all. Yet for some reason, humanity recognizes that we're meant for more than suffering, that suffering is evil, that suffering is something to be combated, that suffering is something we should fight against. And the question for me isn't, is there suffering? The question for me is, am, why do, does it bother me? And am I doing anything about it? And so I, I try to address that argument uh, uh, sensitively, but also genuinely. In what ways do prominent atheists use logical fallacy arguments? So Sam Harris is another one of these uh, outspoken evangelistically atheists that, that writes about things. And I took one of his books and I just looked at it as a lawyer, as a trial lawyer. And bless his heart, this fellow would get bounced out of court because his, his, his logical reasoning is just, it's a textbook of logical fallacies. He starts out with this narrative about a husband and wife riding on a bus in, in uh, Jerusalem, and they've been shopping for a refrigerator, and they've got the brochures on their lap. And I mean, he just goes into all of these details when somebody pulls a, a, the cord on a suicide vest and blows up the bus. And he says, you know, this and kills everybody. And he says, this really happened. And you don't have to think twice to decide uh, that this was a religious bombing. And this is what religion does. And so I'm, I'm reading that. And I thought, well, first of all, there's no way that's what really happened. Because you don't know that the husband and wife had the refrigerator brochure on their lap and were discussing what they were going to do with the refrigerator in their home. You weren't in there. Nobody was in there. He's added these made up facts to try to make it a captivating story to elicit your sympathy. So the first thing you got to do is you got to say, well, time out. We'll deal with facts but let's not make things up just to engender sympathy, to uh, confuse our thinking. Let's just have the facts. And then you start looking at the facts. And, and what he wants you to believe is that most killings, in fact, he says this, most killings and things of that nature are religious in origin. I'm sitting here thinking, well, buddy boy, have you ever looked? The big debate of the 20th century is who killed the most, Hitler, Stalin, or Pol Pot? I mean, that's the big question, but all three of them, there is no question. All three of them were definitely not doing it in the name of religion. They were doing it in the name of atheism. They were doing it uh, anti-religion. They, they were out to destroy religion. And, and so the idea that, that uh, religion just brings these horrible things is, is just another logical fallacy. It, it doesn't take into account all of the evidence. It cherry picks evidence, as we would say in the States. And so um, uh, it, these, these are just loaded with logical fallacies that, that truly would get them bounced out of court. Much of the uh, material I've read from Dawkins and so forth, it's incredibly emotional. A lot of the argumentation seems to me to be based on emotion and feeling rather than on logic or reason. But anyway, in what ways do you deal with agnosticism in the book? Agnosticism, I think, needs to be dealt with much more exhaustively because I think it's a more intellectually viable position than atheism. Uh, to, to say, you know, I, I just don't know. I don't know that there's enough evidence to persuade me there is a God. 
I'm not ready to write him off or her off or whatever it might be, but, but I'm not ready to accept it. And I think that, that that's an argument or a position, I should say, that merits very close scrutiny and examination. And so uh, I try to do that. And that's where I try to look at the, the compelling evidence for God and the compelling evidence against God. And I weigh these different worldviews and try to make sense of the world. You know, to me, our view of, of what is real, our view of, of whether or not there is existence beyond us and, and the legitimacy of that, uh, our view of whether or not there is love, of whether or not there's good and evil, our view of that is what we commonly call a worldview. And so I need to come up with an explanation for those things that makes sense with the world itself, but also makes sense of me, myself, and also as something that's livable and also as something that produces a good society and a good culture. And so I weigh those two in, in, in the agnosticism chapter. An atheist or indeed an agnostic might indeed argue that a belief in God is completely inconsistent with modern science. Yeah, and, and that's such a tragedy that, that the Christians and, and, and certain parts of Judaism have abdicated science. So and I deal with this very carefully in the last couple of chapters, and, and I almost put this into a different book, but I decided, uh, talking to the publisher, that it really belongs here, because Christians need to understand that and and the world needs to understand that Christianity embraces science, that science is God's tool that He has given to us to combat the misery and the evil of this world. Now, anything that can be used for good can be used also for evil. I can take food, which can be used to nourish my body, but I can also eat myself into an early grave. If all I do is have fish and chips in the morning, afternoon, and evening, my cholesterol is pretty soon going to clog my arteries like crazy, and I'm going to be uh, uh, six feet under much sooner than I would otherwise. So you can take almost anything and make it for good or bad. Same with science. Science, you know, you can, you can understand the structure of the atom in ways that can produce energy for clean energy for our world. Or you can understand it in ways that will create a bomb that can destroy um, half of London in a suitcase. You know, you, 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 can, you can use science for good or evil. God says scripturally that he's given us this world and an ability to understand it and that it's a reliable world. We don't live in a Harry Potter world. We live in a world that makes sense because we have a God who made it and he made it to make sense. And he made it in ways where where animals propagate after their own kind and, and will produce more animals. And it doesn't take you waving a magic wand to get it to happen. You know, he's, he's created a sensible world and told us, figure out this world and use it to a good end to help eliminate suffering and, and things of that nature. So science is a tool. Science, Paul writes in the first chapter of Romans that, that this world and the way it's made actually reflects the character of God. You know, we, we have a God who's consistent, just like science and the world is consistent. We have a God who doesn't change. You know, two plus two is four today. It was four yesterday. It'll be four tomorrow. God is the same today, yesterday, and tomorrow. That These are, that science is 
is one bookend of the knowledge of God, and Scripture is another bookend. So we have uh, a revelation, and we have of uh, of Scripture, but we also have revelation in the world, and and those two do not fight each other. Those two coexist as explanations and, and tools of God. Yes, is that why Christianity and the Christian worldview make sense to you? Absolutely, uh, uh, it makes uh, the the worldview makes sense to me uh, uh, on each layer. First of all, I understand the world by this. It, it explains to me why we live in a world that, that is, is designed where the mechanics of this world allow for human life, not just human life, but allows human life to thrive. It allows human life to, to exist on a level that gives us a chance to understand things, to, to probe with science and, and technology, and to, to, to also, though, express ourselves in art and music and all sorts of, of beautiful forms to express ourselves in love and relationships. All of that's explained through not just science, but also through scripture in a consistent way. So it explains the world. It explains me. It explains why I am the way I am, why there's this longing in my heart for relationships, why there's this longing in my heart for a true unconditional love, uh, someone who knows me fully and yet says, I love you even as you are, you know, which is what God does. And, and, and so it explains the world outside, but it also explains me, and it also explains uh, 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 so much more. So that's, that's why I land there. Well, there we are. That's our half hour, I think, with Mark Lanier. His new book from IVP into Varsity Press in America is called Atheism on Trial. A lawyer examines the case for unbelief. Thank you so much, Mark, for your time. And thanks to our sponsor, our creative team at Liquid Edge, who sponsor this podcast and take care of things behind the scenes. Thank you so much. We really hope you've enjoyed this episode of the God Story Podcast. If you want to help us make more great episodes like this one, you can head over to our Patreon page and become a God Story Podcast supporter. You'll receive our undying gratitude, plus a few bonus goodies for your ongoing support. Just visit patreon.com slash godstorypodcast. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash godstorypodcast. As always, you can get in touch with us via our website, godstorypodcast.com.